The Westminster Kennel Club. You heard of it? Not to be confused with Westminster Theological Seminary. <laughs> the club recently held its annual meeting, competition. And the winner, the best in show prize went to Trumpet, a bloodhound. He was crowned the 2022 canine champion. This competition is the second longest continuing sporting event in the United States. And Trumpet did something that has never before been accomplished. His win marks the first time in 147 years that a bloodhound blood was named Top Dog. There are a number of fun facts to know and tell about bloodhounds. Um, they are uh, reported to be uh, the dogs that have the best sense of smell in the whole world. Each nose, it's said, has between 220 and 230 million olfactory receptors. Uh, their noses are a thousand times more powerful than the human nose. A bloodhound has, as you may know, uh, long ears that, uh, they aren't like a Doberman's ears, they kind of start partway down the side of his head. Long ears. And a wrinkled face. And um, those aren't simply interesting features. People who study bloodhounds say that the long ears and the wrinkles function like catcher's mitts. They enable the dog to pick up scents that he can then bring into his nose and enhance his tracking ability. And um, one more, the bloodhound is the first dog whose smelling tracking ability is accepted as admissible evidence in a court of law. We might call bloodhounds sophisticated super smellers. And we ask the question, who dreamed up these critters anyway? They remind me of the song we sometimes sing, all creatures bright and beautiful all creatures, great and small, all things wise and wonderful, the Lord God made them all. And when you think about a bloodhound and his service to the human race, it raises a larger question. He's been designed to be good at smelling. But to what end? And that points us beyond to another question. What is God doing with bloodhounds and other creatures? What is God doing in the world? And that's the topic that's before us this morning in Ephesians chapter 1. It's all about God's plan. So if you have a Bible, please turn to it. Ephesians 1, we're going to look at those verses John just read for us. Verses 1 through 14. 
And they focus our attention on God's plan. It's no small thing when you think about it because um, we need some sense of what God is doing if we're going to keep in step with him. We need to know what his purposes are if we're going to make the best, in best investment of the resources he's placed at our disposal. Now, these verses come to us in two parts. First of all, you'll see uh, an explanation of God's plan, and then after that, God's place, or man's place in God's plan. And after we've looked at those two, God's plan and our place in it, then we'll suggest an application, a couple applications for the week that's ahead. Well, what is God's plan anyway? There are three components of it. There is the idea of blessing, uh, choosing and redemption, and then a cosmic uh, part of his plan. As you'll see from verse 1, Paul's the author. He's an apostle, meaning that he was sent out by God. Um, he's addressing Christians, that is, they are saints, he calls them first of all, and then you'll see uh, faithful in Christ Jesus. And these are people who are in Ephesus, which is now in modern-day Turkey. Verse 2 gives us an overview of God's plan. He says, grace and peace to you. You can think about the word grace as an acronym. G, God's, R, riches, A, at, C, Christ's, E, expense. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense, undeserved favor. But there's also peace here. The word uh, finds its root in the Old Testament, a Hebrew word shalom, and shalom carries with it the notion of things being set right, right with God, right with the world, as they should be. And this is a typical salutation. You find the same kind of thing in many of the other books in the New Testament. Now, that all brings us to verses 3 through 14. And um, John has rightly said it's very dense. It's not just dense. It is dense, but it's not only dense. It's also long. It's very long. It is 202 words long. From verse 3 to verse 14, no periods. And in fact, it's the longest verse in the New Testament. Now, Paul brackets all that he has to say in 13 to 18 between these boundaries. Uh, verse 3, he says, blessed be God, and then in verse 14, he says, to the praise of his glory. Why bless God? Because of his amazing plan to bless his people. What else do we find here? God's plan is to choose and to redeem his people. Look at verses 4 through 8a. To choose and redeem his people. Verse 4, there's the first reference to it. He chose us in Christ. When did he do it? Verse 4, before the foundation of the world. Go back as far as you want. Go back before the Lord 
spoke the cosmos into existence, and what will you find? Back then, he had you in mind. Amazing. Can't get over it. He had you in mind, and he had all believers down through the ages in mind. How could that be? Look at verse 5. He predestined us. That is to say, God decided beforehand. Now, granted, it's hard for us to get our heads around this concept because things come up like this. How does God's eternal plan fit with man's free will? That's one of the things that's hard to understand. And I am not about to try to explain that to you today. <laughs> but I will say this. As we consider that topic, let's also consider this. The Bible teaches that we are sinners through and through. All of our thoughts are tainted by sin. And so to suggest that the human being can somehow with his sinful bent uh, think God's thoughts and not have his thinking twisted misses the point. Even our best logic is affected by sin. Now, it's a hard concept to get, but it's not because it's without biblical support. You look at Romans chapter 9, and Paul is very clear as he talks about Isaac's wife, Rebekah. Do you know what happened to her? Well, this is what Paul says. Though Jacob and Esau, her twins that she's about to, to, to whom she's about to give birth, uh, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the, the younger. And then he goes on and he says, so then it is not that it depends on human will or exertion. Salvation doesn't depend on human will. It doesn't depend on my choice to choose God. It depends on God who shows mercy. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 9, verse 23. Now you could also look at uh, a, a corollary in Acts chapter 2. Peter's sermon at Pentecost, he's talking to a Jewish audience and he says, my brothers, you, by, you just slew your Messiah. But he doesn't just say that. He says, by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you put your Messiah to death. So the worst crime in all of history is by God's design and also laid at the feet, in terms of moral responsibility, at the feet of those who put Jesus to death. Well, what about God's aim in choosing us for himself? Go back to verse 4 and look at that, please. That's a partial explanation. It's not the whole thing here, but it, it gets us going in the right direction. That we should be holy and blameless before him. And then there's a related reason. Look at verse 5. He predestined us for adoption as sons. Now just let that sink in a little bit. Thinking about God's adoption makes me think about human adoption. I have some experience with that. Who takes the initiative in an adoption process? 
Debbie and I recently saw a little four-month-old baby who's just been adopted. Did he take the initiative? Did he say, hmm, let me see, who are the available families out there? No, not at all. Who pays the legal fees? This little kid? No. It's not the child, it's the would-be parents that make all the decisions. And so it is in the Lord's adopting us. He chose us that we might be part of his forever family. And now finally look at the end of verse 5. According to the purpose of his glorious grace. God's design in salvation is not to make us look good. It's to make him look good. That's what Paul says. And these blessings that flow to us from the Lord are intensely practical. If you look at verses, uh, at verse 7, you'll see they flow over into our redemption. We've been purchased once for all, a decision never to be revoked, and we're forgiven. Think about those sins that haunt you the most, your most troubling failures, buried in the depths of the sea, put behind God's back, blotted out of the record, never to be remembered against you again. We are objects now, in verse 8 then, of overflowing grace, kindness, and wisdom. God blesses with every blessing in the heavenlies. God chooses and he redeems. And those two truths now lead us to God's end game, which is in verses 8 through 10. Would you look at those, please? Verses 9 and 10 say it this way. And all this is a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This plan is already in process. It hasn't been consummated yet, but it's in process. God is doing something amazing. All the things in heaven and all the things on earth are being united in Christ. One commentator puts it like this. God is in the process of organizing the entire universe, both its heavenly dimension and its earthly dimension around Christ. The historical course of the universe finds its organizational principle in him. And God is delighted with this plan. Did you notice it? Look at verses 5 and 9 now. God gets a kick out of this plan that he's created. Verse 5. He predestined us according to the purpose, which could be translated the pleasure of his will. And then verse 9. He made known the mystery of his will according to his purpose or his pleasure. God chose Christ to be our Savior he named him King of Kings and Lord of Lords, but we live in a world that does not yet acknowledge his rule, does not kneel before its appointed king. Now, there are a couple takeaways that we want to underscore here. In our fractured world, God's plan is very good news. 
we don't have to go very far to bump into distressing divisions. We see them in marriages. We see them in families, in communities, in nations. And while they're very painful, they are temporary. They're temporary. God is uniting all things in heaven and on earth in his son, the Lord Jesus. So whatever your struggle may be today, you can look with hope to the future. There's another inference, though, and we don't want to miss this one. All things will be united in Christ. Let me say it again. All things will be united in Christ. And so one of the most important questions you can address is that of your personal relationship to him. All things are going to be united to Christ. Are you united to Christ? Well, the Lord offers you this moment, and he says, Look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. You can come in faith to Christ in this moment if you will. Will you come? Sheena Inagar is a researcher at Columbia University. And she has calculated that the average person makes about 20 decisions a day, which amounts to, do the, do the math yourself, 20, 70 decisions, what did I say? 70 decisions a day, which amounts to 25,000, right? About 25,000 a year. And if you live just the age of 40, you will have made about a million decisions. That's who you are. That's what you've become. But many of our decisions, I don't want to say this, but many of our decisions are faulty. They're error prone. Let me give you a personal example. A few weeks ago, we're going home after church, and um, we go down Yerger Boulevard, turn right on State Hill, go down to Van Reed, turn left, and about that time, I say to Debbie, oh no, I need to make a phone call. Would you get my phone now? It's usually right there in the cup holder between our seats. And I will also tell you, at that point, I'm a little hungry and mildly irritable. Mildly irritable. <laughs> but the phone isn't there. And I say, oh no, where is the thing? Would you please call me? So she gets out her phone and calls. Guess what? No answer. And about that moment, it dawns on me. I know where my phone is. It's in my study on my desk. So we come back and pick it up and go our merry way. The difficulty there is that is not the first time that has happened. <laughs> but not so with God. He has a plan. He's working his plan. It's a plan to bless 
It's a plan to choose and redeem. It's a plan that encompasses all of the cosmos. Now, in addition to that, Paul also tells us that God has given you a place in this plan. This is not irrelevant theology. It is not. You say to yourself, big deal if I'm in part of his plan. Well, it's not irrelevant as far as Paul is concerned here. Look at your Bible again. Just let your eye flow down through the passage and note all the personal pronouns. Us, you, we, our. Uh, I totaled them. There's about 15 of them just in those short verses. The Lord has a place for you in his plan. How's it described here? Well, again, in three ways. You're chosen in love. You get to understand his mystery. And on top of that, you're given spirit-filled standing with God. Now, I know we've touched on this already, but let's go back over it. You were chosen in love. Again, verses 4 to 8. Now, we want to ask the question, what's the relationship between God's plan and his heart? Well, he's not whimsical. He is motivated by, look at verse 4 now, he's motivated by, in love he predestined us. God cares about you. And this is linked to our adoption. Now, according to Roman law, uh, adoption could take place so as to continue the family line. But the adoption that God provides for us, uh, the adoption that comes from our Heavenly Father, is simply because of his affection for those he chooses. So we've seen in verse 6 that God's love brings forth a response of praise from God's people. And so now look at verses 7 and 8 again. This love that prompted election and predestination, that love overflows in redemption and forgiveness, in saving, in, in his uh, search and rescue mission, God is about the business of loving people into his kingdom. Objects of love, that's one way to understand our place in his plan. But there's another one, and it's in verses 8 through 10. God lets you in on his secret. Now, verses 9 and 10 say it this way. God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things in earth. God let you in on his secret. See it there? Mystery? A mystery in the New Testament is this idea of uh, something that was hidden and now is revealed. Well, God has revealed himself to you. How about a true story? 
Years ago, in another church, a young couple came, and we will call them Bob and Patty. They came and they said, could we please, we want to meet with the elders, and so they did. And Patty was terribly depressed to the point of being suicidal. She'd been to a counselor. The counselor said, you need to be in a church where people will hear your story. So go and talk to the elders and see if they will take time to listen to you. And then, over the course of days, weeks, months, Patty told us, and this is a synopsis of what she said, I grew up in a nominally Christian home and went to a nominally Christian church. But I can't remember anybody telling me who God is, how I could be related to him, and how having a relationship with him would make any difference in my life. That, those topics never came up. She couldn't understand her place in the world. Nobody had ever taken the time to explain it. Now, the fact of the matter is that we can't know God's mind unless he reveals himself to us. But he has done that. He's given us the Bible. And we can be sure that whenever God makes a, a self-revelation, it will be marked by the stamp of divinity and it will be reliable. And so just think about how very privileged you are. We got Bibles under the chairs in front of you. And my guess is if you turned around, you'd see there are Bibles under the chairs behind you. And there are Bibles in the library. And there are Bibles at your home. And there are Bibles, Bibles are on your phone. Bibles seem to be everywhere for us, don't they? All you have to do is pick up one and read it if you want to understand the mystery of God's will. And we might note on the side that someone has uh, insightfully said, God won't bless your ignorance no matter how many times you dedicate it to him. Now there's one other detail here about God's plan. And that is that he has given you spirit-filled standing with him. Look at verses 11 to 14, please. Verse 11, in him we've obtained an inheritance. Verse 12, so that we might be to the praise of his glory. Verse 13, when you heard and believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He is the inheritance until we acquire the possession of it. One, uh, one commentator has said that what Paul's doing in this section is he's really uh, helping us to get to the summit of God's plan. God's children, are you a child of God today? God's children are heirs. This decision didn't depend, we didn't get to be heirs by anything that we have decided to do. Uh, neither is being an heir of God like him rolling some uh, cosmic dice. Rather, us being heirs is preconceived and purposeful. 
all things are going to be consummated in Christ, we're told, and believers are the very inheritance of God who works all things according to his will. Now, that is what I would call a high standing. And you see, uh, the Holy Spirit is the seal and the down payment. You've been given the Holy Spirit, and he guarantees the subsequent delivery of the goods and services that God provides and God promises. So we can live in hope and wait in hope for the end of history when all the blessings of God will be ours in abundance. As the story goes, in the early days of the Apple Corporation, the company wasn't doing well. So Steve Jobs flew to New York to talk to John Scully. He was then the CEO of the PepsiCo Corporation. And um, Jobs went to him to try to convince him to take over the leadership of Apple. Well, Scully wasn't having it. And so Jobs challenged him with this question. Do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugared water, or do you want to come help change the world? And it's an apropos question for Christians. What are you doing with your life? Do you want to continue with the equivalent of selling sugared water, or do you want to come help change the world? The vision and the challenge of this passage is a part of God's eternal plan. He's going to change the cosmos. It's a wonderful plan. It's bringing all things together in Christ. And so we can expect as the gospel goes forward that people will hear it, the Spirit will move, they will be drawn to the Savior, and they'll be incorporated into the fellowship of his church worldwide. And you're a part of that plan. That's the point here. We get to find creative ways to participate with Christ in making his name glorious. So where might you, believe, where might you begin? That's the question. What application might come out of this? And I have two suggestions. First of all, uh, uh, based on what we just saw, verse 5 and verse 9, uh, Paul tells us that God likes his plan. It gives him pleasure. The notion that in eternity past, he would choose some to be his and bring them into fellowship with his son, he likes it. My question to you is, do you like God's plan? And how do you show him that you like him? So one point of application would be to mull over that. Where is my heart when it comes to God's plan? Have I ever said, thank you, Lord, for this plan? 
you think it's the best thing since sliced bread, I guess I need to get on board and view it as the best thing since sliced bread. That would be one point of application. Here's another one. Why not begin simply the way Paul begins this passage and ends this passage? Why not, as a point of application, which seems to run through the whole thing, why not you responding to this by saying, God, I bless you. I bless you because, and then fill in the blanks. Well, to make it a little more personal and a little more immediate, maybe that's something you could do at lunch today. You're eating with people. You might take the initiative to say, hey, let's just take a moment here and say, Lord, we bless you. We bless you because, and then share the results. Now you say, well, I can't do it at lunch. Got other things. All right. There must be some time on this Lord's Day when you could get off on the side and say, Lord, I just want to note how much I appreciate you. Blessed be God who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask you to apply it to us. Help us to be delighted with your plan and help us to give ourselves to making your name great. We ask these mercies in Jesus' name.